Three, two, one. Welcome to Sounding Point Podcast. My name is Joseph Christensen, and with me today is Harlan Hayes. He is an opera singer. He is a member of the chorus of the San Francisco Opera. He is a, the on the voice faculty of the San Francisco Boys Chorus. And he is an avid outdoorsman, backpacker, skier, and he is my classmate and friend from San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on, Joe. This is really, really great. So I was uh, scrolling Twitter the other day. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to follow the the classical music talk as much as I can. And uh, SF Opera pops up. And I say, oh, Harlan. Oh, he, you know, I, I, I knew you got that job with the boys chorus. I was like, oh, I wonder if they're shouting him out. And I was like, wait a second. No, <laughs> <laughs> some, some stuff just went down. So uh, Harlan has been in the news quite a bit recently. Um, could you tell us what happened? So um, last Wednesday, I, me and my best, one of my best friends, his name's Reed Delahunt. He's another, he's another opera singer. We, uh, He's another, also another backpacker. We we said, you know what? Let's get out of all this smoke from these wildfires and let's head up to the mountains and let's just try to escape as much as we can and do a do a nice long backpacking trip. So our original plan was to hike from Wednesday last week until uh, Sunday night, drive home Monday morning, jump right into the swing of things with work and whatnot. Little did we know. <laughs> So we got caught, we got trapped up there um, at at uh, Lake Edison at the Vermilion Valley Resort where we were evacuated to because of the creek fire. Um, and we were trapped in, up in the mountains. We couldn't get out by road. Um, there were multiple exit points through the mountains on the trails and we were considering taking those if it got bad, if we had to make a run for it. But we were advised by the National Guard to stay put and thank God we did because they flew in with their helicopters and they <laughs> saved us. They flew in and picked us up and flew us out and, uh, and saved us from the fires. It was a uh, and they dropped you off. In, yeah, they dropped us they off, dropped down you off in Fresno. Fresno, right? Yeah, and uh, that's where I was met with some TV I, cameras and whatnot. And I just I was yeah. running on about forty hours of no sleep and God. full smoke in my nose and lungs and. And a whole bunch of adrenaline, so much adrenaline, <laughs> and so I, so I definitely gave them what they wanted. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I talked to you that night uh, just very briefly, and uh, you sounded you sounded uh, amped. <laughs> yeah, it definitely. was. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the magnitude of what happened that while we were up there, it, it didn't hit me until I got back to San Francisco and back into civilization mm -hmm. and the regular hustle bustle of everything that how really, really how close we were to, um, to it getting really bad. And, and up there, the whole time we were there, we were all ready for the worst. All of us know that whenever you go out in the mountains, that there's a significant risk involved that anything can happen out there, you know. Um, people think, oh, wildfires, those are the most dangerous thing, or, oh, getting struck by lightning is really dangerous, or, oh, getting caught in a snowstorm would be really dangerous, or maybe an earthquake, but, you know, there are little things like walking across a river, and you slip, and you fall, and you and you hit your head, and then you drown, or you yeah. or you trip, and you fall off a cliff, <laughs> or, you, yeah. you know, it's, it's, or you try to feed a deer, and the deer turns around and bucks you in the stomach, and you get an internal bleeding. All this kind of stuff can happen out there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Don't feed deer. <laughs> that's, Actually, it's that's funny. A, uh, that's one of the number one causes of death out there in the mountains is uh, really? trying to feed wildlife. Huh. Well, let this be a PSA to all listening. Don't feed the animals. <laughs> <laughs> the signs exist for a reason. Um, and that is a position that this podcast stands by 100%. Um, so that is it. I mean, just reading about the story is extreme and now hearing you talk about it. So you were actually contemplating like hiking out. It was that bad. You were that now. Okay. So guide me through that. So the fire, like, how did you know, when did you start to realize things were getting bad? Where were you? 
So we had been on a section of the John Muir Trail going up into Evolution Valley, which is in the Sierra National Forest. Well, the Sierra National Forest and Kings Canyon National Park. Um, our car was parked down at a lake called Florence Lake, which is a general resupply position or location for backpackers who are doing the through hike of the John Muir Trail, which is a 220 mile trail. And so they get to this section, which is half, about halfway through, and people usually bring them their next supply of food that they're going to need for their next run of the trail. So there's a resort there, and there's multiple locations where ranger stations are and means of means of people getting contact out into the rest of California or wherever they're from. And um, so Reed and I were about about 10,000 feet in elevation, and we look out to the west, and we're about 20 miles away from where we started, and we see this giant cloud in the sky and you know i've been out there my entire life and i i know what it what it looks like when there's a big wildfire coming and um i i knew that something was something bad was happening but we didn't know for sure and so i said reed it's time to hike out we need to get to the car we need to find out what's going on we need to talk to some of someone who's of an official position yeah. and so we we hiked 17 miles to the resort where the resupplies are and there um everyone was already gone everyone had been evacuated there was one man who was there who was keeping track of uh people that were uh missing say uh he he asked us our name we said hi i'm harlan hayes this is reed delahunt and he said oh wow you guys uh yeah your parents have been trying to contact us and find get a tab on you guys because this fire is really serious and you need to evacuate right away and so we were planning on staying the night there but that wasn't going to happen and we just luckily it was only another five and a half miles to hike to uh, where our car was and uh um so we just you know ate some snacks drank a whole bunch of electrolytes and carried on through and finished up with about a 20 mile hike got to our car and the person in charge of the uh the ferry at the lake said you guys uh, can either stay here or you can go to lake edison um but the road to get back out to the central valley is completely engulfed in flames and you're not going to make it out so we said all right we'll just hunker down and we put everything on the table of which directions we could hike to get out from the east side of the sierras or which directions we could hike to just stay in the mountains and wait it out because we could hike up into the high country where there is no trees it's just ice and rock and, right. and ice rock and water um yeah. we had enough food to do that um but we were advised not to based on some injuries we had some pretty bad blisters and um and uh plus my asthma was starting to work up and all the smoke and so that we were advised by the by the fire department and the fresno sheriff's department just to stay put and uh and we did we were with with about 60 people up there and the funny thing was is the whole time we were there we were we were just partying <laughs> We're having a blast. The, the the resort that we were at, um, they just kept us well fed, well boozed, well well uh, well sung. We were all singing singing campfire songs and playing guitars. And I have my ukulele; it's right up here. And uh, you know, we were just uh, having a good old time. It was it was difficult uh, calling home because there was one satellite phone for everyone to to use, but we all got our share and. Uh, um, they didn't charge us anything for for anything. They just just let us let us have full reign over oh, their, their land there, and uh, it was it was pretty amazing. Uh, the Vermilion Valley Resort is I will forever remember that place. I'll definitely go there from now on on my way out just to stop for food, if not to talk to all the people there that I met. Um, yeah, I've made some really close friendships just in those three days that we were there with complete strangers. However, all of us having in common our love for the great outdoors and love for adventure. And, uh, it was, uh, yeah. So. And uh, hardship, hardship bonds us. And it's, it's hard to imagine a, uh, a bonding experience, uh, <laughs> much more intense than that. Wow. So that resort really, um, really came through. They really yeah. did. Really did. And so you were at the point of deciding either to hike out up to up into the uh, up above the tree line, which, as you pointed out, even if you make it up there, the the respiratory th like it would you you might be surrounded by smoke for who knows how long. Right. Exactly. That was just it. Is that we didn't know what was what the smoke 
was going to be life. You know, luckily during COVID times, we all had brought masks and buffs with us just in right. case. So we were, yep. we were uh, well supplied in that way. Um, it would have just, the, the shortest hike out would have been 20 miles. However, it would have been about a four to 5,000 foot elevation gain. So we would have gone up to, gone up to about 12,500 feet at the highest and then dropped yeah. down into the desert on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it would have been a marathon for sure, especially with the air quality. Um, yeah. and we were, we were prepared to do that with about seven or eight other people. Mm -hmm. Um, wow. and, uh, but it just got, you know, by the time we were considering actually doing it, it was the day before we were like, okay, we're going to get up early at four in the morning tomorrow. We're going to get out of here as fast as we can. And, Mm -hmm. um, by that point, though, the Fresno Fire and Fresno Sheriff's Department had arrived at the scene and they were mm -hmm. encouraging everyone just to stay safe and healthy and not do too much running around so they could keep track of us, et cetera, and make sure that we're, that we're all safe. Um, yeah. And it was at that point that they said, okay, everyone, we're evacuating in a caravan. Everybody pack your cars, get your carpools ready. We're all going to drive out of here today. Everyone did that. This was on Monday. Everyone did that. And... Uh, we were about ready to go when the road was completely engulfed in flames once again, and the and all of the firemen, all the sheriffs, they were also trapped with us, and so wow. it became this big camp full of full of rescuers and and backpackers and and as mm. well as uh, as well as people who were just driving up there for the weekend to go fishing, you know. You, um, I mean, if you had left a couple hours earlier, you could have been in the blaze. I could have been. Um, well, yeah. actually, actually, uh, yeah. If I had left a couple hours earlier and got in my car and driven down, I would have, I would have either been in the blaze or somewhere else with some firefighters or something or yeah. escorted. I have no idea what had happened, but I'm glad I stayed put. I'm sure glad I stayed yeah. put because, hmm. um, it. Like I said, when I got back to San Francisco after after the whole ordeal, I I was, I was just shocked at at how close we were to it, and yeah. I realized how happily i was ready to how happily i was ready for the worst you know uh, yeah. there were there were families up there there were little kids up there just 20 miles away from us over at the uh over at um uh, i can't remember the, there's a there's a pool it's uh it's called the i can't remember what it's called Anyway, there's a there's a there's another lake about 20 miles away from us where people were held in, and the fire came to them. The fire came all the way around the lake, and these people had to run for their lives and get into the lake and and try to survive. And people were getting burned by the air as they were running, you know, on their faces and, and everything. And I was ready for that. So were all of us. We were all ready to do whatever it took to make sure that we got through. Yeah. Um, like I said, there's always a risk up there. There's always the the chance that something really bad could happen, but it's a it's part of why I go up there. It's not the whole reason yeah. why, of course, but it's but that 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 aspect of adventure is uh it's really hard not to not to feel the call. Yeah, I um I was I mean it was in comparison minor, but um over Labor Day weekend I, I went body surfing and I used to go surfing a lot. And, Good for uh, you. And uh, <laughs> I do, I do it, a lot of that. Oh, oh awesome. We should yeah. go do that too. <laughs> oh, totally uh, That's very yeah, man. But, yeah. um, you know, anytime you get in the ocean, not so much body surfing, but sure. Anytime you get in the ocean, you kind of, you put yourself at the mercy of nature, you know, and chances are everything will be fine, you know? And, I suppose in, in civilized society, whatever you call that, civilized society, urban uh, people gathering together, modern conveniences being largely available, um, there's an illusion of control that we have over our environment, which is, I think, very much an illusion. But that certainly goes away to a great degree when you go into nature. And chances are everything will be fine, but you open yourself to that kind of almost fate you know how nature is this grand serene majestic thing that unfortunately doesn't care about you at all <laughs> so it's the only place in the world where true chaos exists but 
true chaos that is absolutely beautiful and it's when you look at it it seems like it's all like it's all perfect and it's all the way it's supposed to be but it's just constant chaos Mm -hmm. that just creates the the purest beauty in the world in my opinion and it's not it's like you know we we there's humanity has this sort of odd relationship with nature in that we've for thousands of years been doing our best to separate ourselves from the dangers of nature and to advance our own technology, advance our own uh, coping mechanisms to deal with it. But it's when you go into nature like that, that's totally un, uh, untrammeled. And you're to- you're going into where there is no pavement, there are barely any trails, there's, you know, far, far away from where cars or roads have ever been made. Um, so it's about as close as you can possibly get to pure nature. And that is when you see what the world was, <laughs> what yeah. largely still is, except for isolated areas that we've taken over for now. And <laughs> you get to see, oh yeah, we're these tiny little creatures who who like to separate ourselves from nature, who right. think we can, but but can we really? Mm-mm. Especially those of us who are called to go, get, get out into it, though, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was nuts. The uh, so this would have been Monday night. Um, another camp from uh, another refugee camp. Uh, we're all escorted to our location. So we were because our location had a dried lake bed where helicopters could possibly land have, if they needed to get us. And so they all were brought over there, and we all put them up for the night and went to bed and I, you know, no one really sleeps out there in the smoke, but anyway, so I woke up at about two in the morning and um, the whole camp was silent. The trees were, I, there's this energy in the, in, in the wilderness of like of fight or flight. Everyone, everything was ready. Yeah. Everything was ready for something. Yeah. The birds were gone. The animals were all hunkered down. Mm. The, 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 the bugs were gone. I have no idea what happened to the larger mammals. They are all gone somewhere. It was just yeah. completely dead silent. And the smoke yeah. was so thick. <laughs> and um, you know, this is this is just ash blowing like ash blowing through like like snowflakes, you know. And uh and uh so I stood there and I you know, I wake up early anyways. I wake up and I'm looking around, and it's just this this deep purple glow of light because of the smoke blocking out the moonlight. And uh then all of a sudden, out out in the far distance, I hear. And then all of a sudden, just over the top, like these helicopters flying in, probably just a hundred mm-hmm. feet above our heads, but we couldn't see them because of the smoke. Mm-hmm. And uh, right then, all of the sirens started going off. All the all the police were going through the camps, waking everybody up. Everybody, it's time mm-hmm. to go. This is it. This is it. We're getting evacuated. Mm-hmm. This is it. We're going. We're going. Mm-hmm. And from about three in the morning until uh, until about eight in the morning, which is when I got on the helicopter, they did evacuation runs into Fresno. It took about 20 minutes to fly a group down and then 20 minutes to come back and another 20 minutes to load them all on. And so, there, mm-hmm. you know, there were about 100 people there. And uh, <laughs> which me, which trip me, were you on? Uh, I was in, the, I think, the second to the last. Um, mm-hmm. We were some of the first people to arrive at the location at the uh, at the resort. And I wanted to be wanted to be some of the first to, to leave. the The other groups that came in were mainly people full of families and little kids, and right. elderly people. Right. And like, there's no way I was, you know, you know, those people are regular. Those are regular campers. They're not like the rest yeah. of us who were were backpackers, you know. And so, yeah, we wanted to make sure that they got out. The campers and the general public that don't know the land are the ones that get hurt easier. And so mm-hmm. it was. I wanted to really make sure that those people got out before I did. Yep. You know? So it was, well uh, yeah. When you're in, crazy. when, so when you're in the hotel, right. And you're there with people, you guys are, you know, partying like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like literally. It was, like it was going to be the end of it for sure. We all, that was um, in the back. Yeah. And it wasn't a hotel, by the way, it was, you know, we were just camping. It was just camping out. Right. Out around this, this place that happened to have a bar with a grill on it you know so you're outside yeah we're outside yeah. yeah um what did that feel like and 
I mean, I guess I, I would say for myself, I'm fortunate in that I've never been in a situation where I had to make peace with possibly not making it out of there. But from your description, there was obviously fear, but there's also something freeing about it, maybe. Um, I don't know what it is about my, uh, my personality. Um, could be that I have ADHD that I need some, I need the constant stimulation of something and that nature, you know, well, actually in society, things are so ordered. And if you don't fit into that particular order, that's programmed in, like you don't really make it in society, but out in nature, there's just so much chaos constantly that I feel like I'm in control of myself and my thoughts and what I want to do with my life and others around me. And so um, out there, I feel I feel totally fine. I, I'd imagine if I were in, the, in a city during a catastrophe, it'd be different. Um, but out in the woods, if there's a catastrophe and and it so happens to be that during that catastrophe, I may not make it, I'd be okay with that. I'm, I've spent my entire life up there in the mountains backpacking. I, I know over thousands of miles of trails out in the Sierras. And, um, you know, I've, I've witnessed people die out there. It's, uh, it's no joke. It's a real place, um, real wilderness. Um, and so I, I knew what the risk was and, but there was nothing I could do about it at that point. You know, there's no, no getting scared, no getting worried, nothing like that. I just would call my loved ones when I could, when I was able to get a window in to call them and tell them how much I love them and how much I wish I could have been with them, but that's all I could have done. And anything further than that would have made it worse for me um, and for others around me for that reason. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I also have a big personality and I, I try to love as many people as I possibly can. And so the whole time I was there, I had my uke and I was walking around singing to people, making sure they're okay, getting to know everyone as much as I could so that in case something in case it were to get really bad, I would I would know something good about this person, something bad about this person, something, uh, you know, so I could so I so I knew the water I was swimming in, basically, you know, um, it, was, it was tough. It was really tough during it, though. It was it was like the easiest thing. It was easier. It was even easier than walking on stage and singing, you know, mm -hmm. I guess there was yeah. nothing else to do. No, nothing else. We, uh, all of us were dreaming of what it would be like to hike out, you know, we're men <laughs> yeah. mentally placing, uh, okay, I'm going to get to this location in 10 miles. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to eat. I'm going to fill up my water and I'm going to continue on for another five, maybe take a little rest and then like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, building the mental picture of the journey ahead. Yeah. Um, cause even the firefighters and the sheriffs didn't know if we were going to get helicoptered out or if they were going to make us wait. Um, the night before we were evacuated, the uh, Cal Fire was, and the Fresno Fire Departments were were ordering the National Guard not to land out there, not to come get us because it was so dangerous. Because this, this is the biggest fire that anyone had seen ever. Um, I was with a firefighter who had been fighting fires for thirty years there. He was probably in his sixties or seventies, and he said, "He's like, this is it. This is this is the the fire that we've all all of our careers have all built up for this fire. This is it. This is the biggest one." And so we didn't know whether we were going to get out or not. And the National Guard said, you know what? We're going to go in. We're going to get them out. We're going to try everything we can possibly do to get these people out of there. And they, they flew in with their Blackhawk helicopters and their night vision goggles and everything to make sure that we were saved. Um, I'm just eternally grateful for those people. They're absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing Incredible. people. Incredible. Um, yeah. Can you talk about so you're you're connecting at that moment you're you're playing your your singing you're talking to people you're making making new friends yeah. um it sounds like from what you just said it's it almost sounds like you have a survivalist mentality when you go out in the first place so you have that sense before you even venture out into nature that this could be your last trip and that's just part of being an outdoors man. I mean, I suppose part of life, <laughs> we of assume course. that we'll be okay. 
but we don't know. But particularly when you're when you're in nature, you're you're really at the mercy of the elements in a in a way that you're not else not as much otherwise. But um, what was that feeling like when you're there with all these people? You're all kind of there in the same boat, and what was the I I, I don't know I what was the feeling like? Well, so an example would be um, the first day when the when the firefighters and the sheriffs got there, um, we were all sitting around checking out the map together, looking at the direction of the fire, and you know they were laying out the realities of the situation. They're laying it out out to all of us, and they mentioned they're like, "You guys, you know, we're really glad, and it's kind of a relief for us to be here with all of you because you're all such hardy." backcountry people you understand the the risk before you get here you understand that this is that this is that it's always always serious even though you're on vacation that this is a serious serious thing you're doing out here you know and uh they were saying like other people that we deal with regularly don't have that mindset they panic in this situation they freak out they're worried about their children they're worried about their families their jobs they're they they break down and we have to deal with that as well and they were so grateful that they didn't have to deal with any of that with us and that they were able to relax and enjoy themselves and we were able to enjoy their company. And, and it, it just really, it, to be in a community like that, especially during COVID-19, I, I hadn't been around yeah. people for seven months and then to be up there for three days with people working together with this little tiny piece of land on this lake mm-hmm. that was all dried out to a, uh, you know, chopping firewood, uh, bringing, making sure the camp was running smoothly. Everyone was cooking for each other. And, you know, at that point, we all had to decide, okay, is COVID-19 something we're going to worry about right now? Or is making sure we get out of here alive the priority? And so we we just threw all instances of social distancing out, out the window. And yeah. we decided to take that chance and take that risk. Um, it was easy to because all of us had already been in the backcountry for weeks. And none of us were sick. And so we assumed that none of us were sick. Like I even went and got a COVID test as soon as I got back to San Francisco. It came back negative last night. So I think we were right. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that that sense of community is something that I've been I've been missing and yearning for for a long time now. And at the opera, I am there in this huge community. The the, the chorus is sometimes sixty or seventy people. And depending on the show we're doing, and we all have opera singing in common, and we all have, you know, we all have our little things in common. We all work together to produce this this amazing spectacle for the audience to witness, right? Um, and then being stuck inside during COVID and just teaching voice lessons online um, was like the closest thing I could have to fitting in somewhere, you know. Um, aside from with my, my wonderful fiance, Emily, she's just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Um, you know, she and I, we were supposed to get married this year in July and we had to cancel it because of COVID. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot. Um, and so being able to be up there with those people was just, I think that's another reason why I, it felt so easy and natural to, to be mm-hmm. there and doing what we were doing was because we were also deprived of that of that community yeah. feeling and then just just getting to to volunteer okay i'm gonna i didn't do this but like people were saying i'm gonna i'm gonna cook for all of you for the week you know and then all of us going in there and doing, doing you know recommendations on food to eat and and working together and you know just sitting around sitting around the tables laughing and drinking and eating and singing and talking about various wilderness trips and expeditions we'd all been on and other other emergency situations we were all in and all kind of stuff you know it was uh it's pretty amazing i'll never forget it and i hope Did, i hope that i'll have that community again someday you know we we, we became really close friends sorry to interrupt you go ahead oh no no i mean that's the the, the uh it's the online interview uh thing <laughs> Um, man, no, I was going to ask, did it give you a different context for music? You know, 
sometimes I like when, even when I'm reading, I've brought it up before when I'm reading a biography of whatever, a composer back from the day, Franz Liszt or one of these guys. And they talk about sort of their chamber music gatherings and like the, the groups of intimate friends who would come together and in the salon and they would hear new leader by Schubert and, you know, whoever it was, there was like this incredible sense of community, the sense of intimacy that's part and parcel of certain traditions of music. I think it probably with all traditions of music, because music is connected with dance. Music is connected with singing. It's, it's ways of communities to share things with each other. And, you know, as we are out here in COVID-19 time, we're all interacting over the screen and it's, it seems very disconnected on a personal level, what musicians mm-hmm. are doing, right? Right. It fe- like it seems to me that this is almost going back to this really fundamental connection of music to storytelling and sharing a community and sharing like good times and bad, right? So I don't know. Did it give you a different appreciation of music? Well, um, I, I see what you're saying for sure. Um, so say. <laughs> Say here, uh, here when I'm teaching my voice lessons out of my house, I, I open up my windows because you know maybe I, maybe I like people to hear me singing outside, you know. And but but it's true, like I I will all be singing in these lessons, and like people will come outside. I'll hear people like murmuring, "Hey, there's that guy singing again," or, or <laughs> "Hey, oh hey, do you guys know there's a, there's an opera singer here? He's always singing. You guys here? You should walk by. You should listen sometime." Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, I, so I so I kind of like that. But as far as the the connection to people through music singing is was our very first way of making music as a species you know we were the singing was the very we could sure we could hit our rocks on the thing and make the beat you know or whatever yeah. but we used yeah. our voices to scratch to scratch make, sticks together and make yeah know. exactly dropping dropping rocks on someone's foot so they go ah! yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's from the history of the world, the uh, Mel Brooks movie. There's a whole. Oh. <laughs> you just gotta watch a bunch of cavemen doing a symphony with uh, dropping rocks on their foot. It's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, so um, the singing though also is it's the closest thing to crying that we have. That's not crying. You're using your voice sustained on all of your breath, really loud connected to your emotions for a long period of time until you're out of breath each time you take a breath and sing. That's something I, I let out to my students is that when they're singing, it's more like they're controlling a whale. They're controlling their, they're controlling their, their, their cry. You know, here in America, we've, we're told, we're told to, to suppress our feelings, to suppress our emotions and be more be tough and strong and all this stuff. And, and yeah. no crying, no crying, no whining, none of that stuff suppress your emotions from your voice yeah um and i try to break that in people with my students i try to tell them you need to express yourself with your voice express your emotions with your voice and so while we're all up there having not just me there are other people who are singing too like just getting to watch them feeling their emotions through their singing brought us all together in a lot of ways you know it it allows you. That's how, that's how you know a good singer from from a bad one. You go to a show, and if you feel that that raw communication they're giving through their singing, and you feel their emotions, like that's when you know you, there's a good singer up there, regardless of how pretty their voice is. You know, yeah. like I always say, Neil Young. I can't stand his voice, but God, he knew how to sing. You know. Yeah. Um. And so, uh, yeah, getting getting to witness and feel other people's emotions through their singing and then also getting people to just not give an F about, about holding all their stuff inside and then to sing along with us while they're up there. People that I, I could tell when they first started singing there, they were all just kind of like, "Eh." (laughs) yeah. And then like, finally they were all just going, yeah, (laughs) singing along with us, you know, and feeling that, feeling that on the moment, it was such a release. It is a release. If I didn't have my singing and I don't know what I would do, people would think I was crazy. That crazy guy with the loud voice, he was always wailing around. <laughs> you know? 
that's, that's beautiful. That. Man. <laughs> it's um, interesting how that you know that moment of extreme connection with the people around you is it's such a high of human experience. I think in a lot of ways that's something we're trying to reach all the time that we rarely get to. But there's a weird paradox because there's a lot of experiences that can't be separated. So the level of the level of just camaraderie and like sheer human connection that you had was maybe not possible if you weren't all um, you know, afraid for your lives. <laughs> you know. Unfortunately, unfortunately I I, I've traveled all over the world and some cultures, you know, singing is something that people do regularly. You would, I remember going to Scandinavia back when I was in college and I went to a college party and sure everybody's, everybody's drunk, everybody's having a blast, everybody's partying, but singing, singing people our age, like from like age 15 up through 25, we're all into singing together. Everyone had their arms together around singing their favorite songs. Didn't know. Sorry, where one, was this? This was in a, this was in Norway. No, Norway. no one, no one cared about how they sounded or if they were good enough to even be opening their mouth. Like here, like here, like singing and being a musician, like you're, you're only doing it if you're, if it's your profession, you know, you're not yeah. doing it because, yeah. because it's just normal there. You know, like there are people where, you know, it was normal to sing and it's, and, and to make music. And that's something that I feel like for whatever reason was suppressed here. I don't know why, but it, it exists. It, the suppression of people making art. Um, I don't know yeah. what it is. Yeah. I I mean, I think there's a few things. There's a lot of things. We don't, you know, have to cover the whole state of the music industry. <laughs> but um, I think it is significant how, I mean, throughout history in, in a way, um, you have this, you've always had this, um, the divine spark right the muse you've had people who are channeling something who are channeling their emotions who are who yeah yeah going back to dr Homan, shout out right um dr Homan is our uh, our humanities professor at san francisco conservatory of music who gave many life-changing lectures among which the nature of art um so artists have always had this sort of you know connection to the god so to speak of of channeling humanity's voice for itself and everyone has that right everyone has something in them that is expressive mm -hmm. and un unchained and totally wild and primal you know and that is a part of every art you know but at the same time we have a um, we have this it's it's very valuable and therefore we attach money to it and then we have this odd paradox that we have to earn a living or whatever to do this, right. but the standards require right. Then you get competition because all these other people are doing it. So, but then you, you lose the, you lose the reason for doing it in the first place when you're just like starting to, and I feel it myself, I'm, you know, I'm doing this little podcast and trying to create, Oh, look at this social media, look at this video, whatever it is. And you're trying to get attention. You're trying to get eyeballs. And then too much of that, and you kind of lose the core. You lose that divine spark. And, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's a balance because you also you want, if you care about what you do, you'll do that busy work to make sure that it gets out there, that you are sharing it with as many people as possible. But... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to strike that balance, but here and there, here and there, you're, you feel it when you're when you're performing, when you're doing something, and you're like, okay, you know, I'm making progress. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing I'm it, doing the thing. That, that happens. That happens sometimes, like at the opera, where we rehearse a piece for months, and we rehearse the staging for months, and we're up on stage, and maybe one performance is just very kind of left-sided brain, where we just kind of get through the show. We just do everything we were told and we sing everything we're told to sing and we just get through. But then there's, I don't know what it is, how, how, how all of us just click into that, that expressive place where we aren't thinking about the show happening. We're not thinking about the money. We're not thinking about the, the, 
all of the, the, the gears and cogs that are there and we're just feeling it and expressing it. And we can all feel the energy on stage when we're doing that. And like we walk off afterwards and we're all in the dressing room taking showers together and whatnot. We're all looking, we're like, we're all kind of stunned and we're all, we all have goosebumps and we're all, we're all like, wow, we, we just made some real art there. Yeah. We weren't aware of it in the moment. We weren't thinking about making art. We were just, we were just channeling this higher, whatever it is that we are cha are the channels for, you know? Yeah. Um, it's something that I can't explain how it happens. It just does. Yeah. I, I was getting goosebumps while you're saying that because I was thinking of the times that that's happened for me, when it, whether it's a string quartet performance or, um, or even a recital or wherever it is that you're playing. And all of a sudden you realize you're with the audience. You're all going somewhere and right. no one's in, no one's in control of it anymore. It's like mm -hmm. this weird thing takes hold of of everyone. It's almost this mass hypnosis or whatever. Yes. And uh, yes. when you and you kind of realize you're in it, you're riding the wave, and it's just like yeah, there's there's no there's no more satisfying feeling. So I I think that you know this is something going back to something that uh, Professor Homan taught us um, about how musicians are the ones that. Are, performing on stage they aren't connected to the music as much as the audience is because the audience is yeah. is taking they're going in from their regular lives and they go and they witness this thing for the first time and and i i think that's true to a certain degree but i also believe that just like what we we're talking about here that there are those instances where even us we're not aware anymore of all of the work that went into putting this performance on we're not aware of the of of the cogs you know we're not aware of of how this is put together to make this art. We just become the art, yeah. and we just yeah. we just channel it out, you know. And it's a, uh, and at that moment we're we're like, we're like you said, we're the audience as well. Like we're just kind of in mm -hmm. awe of what just happened, and mm -hmm. we ask that question: What the heck just happened on stage just now? <laughs> like, yeah. you, did you feel that? Yeah, man, I felt that. Oh yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the audience yeah. liked it because I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've heard. Uh, it's, it's at those moments where the audience is like, wow, that was the most amazing show. Or wow, that mm -hmm. music was just absolutely stunning. It touched my soul. Mm hmm. You know? Yeah, you're, I mean, you're, um, as a professional, and, you know, we're, we're very blessed to be able to have this as a profession. But my old te my um, teacher Nina or not Nina what am I talking about Bettina Musamelli shout out to my old violin teacher she would tell us at studio class essentially the um, a hard truth but it it is true in order to create the conditions for something like that happening which you're not in control of it happening or not you're mm -hmm. you're in doing a performance you're allowing the conditions for inspiration to occur and you hope they do right, right, <laughs> that has right. to be the right mix of performance and audience and energy and everything. But her point was in a way the performer, you're not going, you're not going there to feel something. If you do your job, right, the audience will feel something, but you know, you might be having, you might be sick. You might be having a bad day. You might have just broken up with someone. You know, yeah. you might not be in that moment exactly with, with, with the feeling. But as a professional, we go out there on stage, regardless of how what our subjective feelings are doing. And you hope that what you've created, what you've worked on, will open that opportunity for for people to feel something. And hopefully, hopefully, the performer will also feel something. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So absolutely, can I, you, I think yeah, you're right on there. Can you tell me about um, your uh, your pandemic life? What's been going on? <laughs> so um, I'm very blessed and fortunate to live in the Presidio here in San Francisco, and I I see pictures of people talking to their neighbors through their windows in, in huge cities or across the street. And there's all this hustle bustle and I can't imagine what it must be like being cooped up inside. Yeah. And yeah. even just a neighborhood, say like the Richmond district, you know, even like a place like that, that's nice and pretty or, or any neighborhood in the city for that matter here. I live at Baker beach 
Oh, I used I, to live in those apartments up there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I live right here on uh, on uh, Stillwell Road. And that's uh, crazy that I lived on Stillwell. Road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a hilarious. Stillwell. Wow. And so, yeah, to be able to have access to Marin, just a 20 minute walk to the bridge and then another 10 minute walk across mm-hmm. the bridge. And I can walk to Canada from there if I want, you know, or if I, yeah. You know, just getting getting out. I, I'm an open water swimmer, and I'm a boogie boarder and body surfer. And um, you know, I, I go down to China Beach and I swim to Lands End and I swim back. You know, I constantly get to have this this uh, this immersion in nature, which is something I I need in my life. I the same with my fiance Emily. Like neither of us thinks that we'd be able to make it in a city. Um, yeah, we would be able to. We would have to live outside of a city in the nature. On a, on a piece of land, you know, building a cob house. We want to have a cob house, a house made out of mud, you know, and hey, have, nice. have animals and the whole thing and just have the constant connection to nature so that I'm able to live near somewhere where there's an opera house or a place where I'm able mm-hmm. to sing, you know. Um, but then again, my fallback that I've always told myself, if, if the singing career doesn't work, I'm going to join the park service and become a ranger, hopefully. But that hasn't happened yet, that it hasn't needed to happen yet so far, but mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. We don't never know what the future holds. Right. Um, yeah. So you're singing with the so, um, upper uh, chorus? Yeah. yeah. No, we when, didn't, what's the you know, latest? Back in March. Was, yeah, so back in March, we were uh, preparing for this season that was supposed to last until November. Um, we didn't know whether... COVID was going to shut everything down or not. And so we were all having our, our rehearsals on Zoom where uh, our conductor, Ian Robertson, shout out, Ian, you're, you're amazing. <laughs> and uh, Fabrizio Corona, our pianist, is another fantastic musician. The two of them led all of our rehearsals. The, you know, the Zoom screen had, you know, 40 people, all of our little profiles on there, all of us singing. <laughs> that no one could hear anyone, right? Yeah, yeah. And all we could hear was playing the piano and Ian conducting and cool. for them it was really difficult because you know Ian can't hear any of it he can't hear his chorus he can't hear he can't make adjustments he can't blend mm-hmm. this voice with this voice all etc etc all that stuff that needs to happen for the performance mm-hmm. to go well um but it was just the strangest thing honestly uh we were, we were preparing for being able to go in and be together for like an hour and put the music together that we had learned and, and then hopefully go on and just wing it on stage. Hopefully, you know, get it, get it, get it rehearsed as much as possible, not in person, but you know, even looking back on that, since we canceled our season back in, uh, in May, yeah, um, yeah. it was, uh, just honestly, this, these seven months that have gone by, have felt like one long day, you know, one long month, I can't describe it. And the the experience I had in the mountains with all those people was the first time in that whole time where I felt like that was disrupted and I felt like things were back to normal, even though we all could have died out there. <laughs> that it took that to feel normal is a testament to the kind of time we're living in. <laughs> God, <laughs> this has been weird. So yeah, I remember that. I thought, I think, uh, SF Opera was one of the early ones to kind of just say, you know, the 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 cards. We're gonna we're gonna read the cards where they are now and and cancel it. But then pretty much everything since then has has gotten canceled. So any word on when things are picking up again, or it's just kind of hard to say. It's hard to say. Um, we are in the final stage, stage four of uh, of of industries to, to reopen. And, you know, as, as a country, we haven't even gotten to stage three or even stage two. I don't know what those other stages are. I just know the one that I fall into. Um, but it's the same for, it's the same for every art form um, that requires an audience and a space for that audience to be and a space for those performers to perform. So baseball, basketball, football, uh, rock concerts, EDM concerts, uh, any, you know, opera, symphony, anything that involves people gathering and then witnessing art together is all in the final yeah. stage of reopening, and none of that is open yet at all, unfortunately. And honestly, until until our governments 
get a hold of this situation, I don't see it happening. I don't yeah. see it happening. Yeah, we can't depend on it coming back on any kind of timeline we would consider right. Right. normal or convenient. So just so you've like been teaching. We yeah. Yeah, just like when we were considering the uh considering it closing or considering it ending. We had no idea. There was no there was no this is realistic um that we probably won't have the opera. It was it was a guess. We may not have it and sure enough they it was canceled, you know. So it was really difficult. Our our company lost twenty million dollars just from canceling this season, you know. It's unbelievable. No one knows what that economic impact will be for the future. Um, and as it stretches has, on into the future, right, it gets harder has and harder. Never, has never dealt with something like that before. And it's almost 100 years old. And, um, you know, they, they they luckily, they are a wonderful company to work for. It's, it's totally a family. I've been singing for San Francisco Opera since I was seven. Um, as a as a children's chorister in the productions with the San Francisco Boys Chorus, and then on through through high school, I was a super in their productions. I wasn't allowed to sing, but on stage, getting to act, and I feel like I've been part of that family my whole life. And so, because of that, the people that run it are also very familiar, and they familial, excuse me, and uh, um, they're making sure that all of us are taken care of as much as we can be and still making sure that the company is a viable, financially stable company when we get back to it later yep. on. And so- Yeah, it's, it's um, I don't, I mean, because they had the loans that went on earlier this year. Um, as it drags on, I, I worry for the, especially the smaller institute, every, every institution, you know, uh, SF Symphony, Everyone had to take a pay cut, from what I understand. Um, everyone is, everyone is weathering the storm, but um, we're gonna lose. We're gonna lose some if if we haven't yeah. already. But I think, I mean, I yeah. think SF Opera will be fine, thankfully. But I'm more worried for the for the small companies. We have we have companies like Pocket Opera is another company that I am affiliated with and I've been singing with for my whole life. Um, and luckily, you know, that company relies on on people who just want to perform people who love to sing people who love to make art. And I, I don't ever see that company ending. Mm -hmm. We can't, get to, we can't perform together because this, because of this, but as soon as we're able to like, that's not going to yeah. be a problem. Yeah. And we perform in we perform in small salons. It's, it's just like chamber music, you know, it's mm -hmm. chamber opera. We perform in a small space. We perform in a country club. We go all over the place and sing for people and they love it, you know? Um, and that's just it is that art will never die you just cannot kill art you just can't true. you just true. absolutely can't kill it and artists are are finding new ways i mean to i mean the productions are it's hard to put on a full fully stage production right now but it's it's been great to see how people are and adapting. that's another thing too especially in america is how people who aren't artists as their profession are realizing you know they're home alone with their kids and they haven't been able to be with their kids every single day because they're out working for a tech company or for anything you know they're out doing that and then they come home and they're stuck at home and they're like their kids mm -hmm. are like dad dad can you sing us a song and it's like oh yeah I, I i remember i played i played guitar in high school yeah i can sing a song and they love it you know yeah you know especially in times extreme times of extreme distress or or uh, being oppressed art really comes out and like i have some students that that hadn't sang since high school haven't sang since they were kids one of my students is the ceo of a hedge fund company and he you know it, everything is money 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 and everything is is this and this and this and and yet i'm, I'm teaching him how to sing and and his wife too and like they just are touched by something they haven't felt for years mm -hmm. and it's something that's inspiring them as well you know, and so, yeah. So that primal—it's cool. That primal thing we were talking about earlier—that odd, sort of, that spiritual need that we have for music—is alive and well, maybe more alive than ever in in a time like this, where we're forced to face our own humanity, forced to face our own mortality, 
And even though we're all separated by screens, that a lot of us are using the technology to tap into that side, to tap into mm -hmm. that spiritual need we have for connection and, and for art. I'm so glad you understand these things, man. <laughs> <laughs> you too, man. This is, uh, this is, I don't know. I'm, I, I knew, um, I knew this was going to be a good conversation, but man, we've My covered some good stuff. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, before we go, um, just your uh, relationship with the boys course over the years and, and your new position with them. So, so um, I started singing with Samson and boys chorus in 1999. Um, my parents put me into it because I liked to sing. And uh, my father also was in the boys' chorus when he was a kid. And uh, um, I wasn't fitting in in school. I didn't have as many friends that liked the things I liked in school. It was all about rap music and playing basketball. And if you didn't do either of those things, you were definitely an outcast. And I sure liked rap music, but I didn't like, you know, I didn't feel it. I wasn't drawn to it. And then same with, uh, same with sports. Like, yeah, sure, I wanted to play to fit in, but man, I... I remember one game I was on the school sports team. Uh, I got, it was my first basketball game. I was in third grade and uh, I got the ball and I was shocked that I got the ball and I was shocked that I was running down the court, dribbling it. I couldn't believe I was dribbling it down the court. I can't believe the basket was wide open. I shot, <laughs> the ball went in. I was so happy to make a basket and realized that it was halftime and we had switched sides of the court. I had no idea. <laughs> I had, I had no great. clue. That, yeah. that, that's how the game was played. No one taught me how to play it. Everyone just yeah, yeah. assumed that everyone knew how to play. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> you know, how do you survive socially after that? Uh, you don't. Um, but great. I had boys chorus. I had boys chorus. There. I, had, I had friends. I had people that were into the things that I was into. We all were nerds. You know, we were all mm -hmm. all kids that loved to sing and get up there in front of people and put on a show. You know, and. And so I was in the boys chorus my whole life and I still am affiliated with them in, until I was, you know, until recently where they've hired me on as part of their faculty. I was heavily involved in, in their, in their summer camps as a camp counselor and, and as a chaperone for their international tours. Um, the, the company has taken me all over the world over the years. I've been everywhere um, except, except for Antarctica and South America are like the two places I haven't been. <laughs> After COVID, uh, after COVID. Yeah, after COVID. And so, um, and then uh, our, our our director, Ian Robertson, who's also the director of the San Francisco Opera Chorus, um, he uh, he retired and our, our, our colleague and friend, uh, Eric Choate, was given the position. Shout out to Eric Choate. You're you're Shout awesome. I'm so, I'm so, so proud and happy to have you as my boss and my friend and my colleague. Um, and you're going to do wonderful things with this group. Um, uh, to to be hired by him and to be brought on as a faculty member is something I've always wanted my whole life. Um, and now I get to now I hopefully get to make a difference and uh, make these kids give these kids give everything that I was given by the chorus to these kids back. It's mm. really important to me. That's beautiful. That's so cool. I mean, yeah, I. I, I mean, I had a probably similar situation with my youth symphony growing up, but the fact that you get to have that sort of unbroken history with them and and now give back to the same same uh, organization and, and a new generation, the same kind of uh, upbringing that you got was really cool. I want I want to make sure that those kids feel like they're they don't have to hide behind society that they're able to they're able to be themselves and express themselves the, the way they need to and the way they want to, and to not be afraid of that and to, and to let that grow. I want to nurture that for sure. Amen. You know, what I was going to say about your uh, basketball that at least you got the basket. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I would have done that same thing, gone to the wrong side, but then missed, you know, and that's just sad. <laughs> no, it was sheer luck that it went in. It was sheer luck. <laughs> <laughs> I got as close as I could. I got down right below the basket and just kind of like, like you know, I was always tall, so I just kind of like put it up there yep. and it went in. Yep, yep. 
<laughs> Man, that's cool. No, I, I think we all are drawn to music by some combination of events. If we found our, found our people growing up, the people who are in common um, with us, have something in common with us, we're touched by music in some way, like we were describing earlier. And, and also people who you can have conversations like this with right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes all the difference. Yeah, man, I sure hope that you and I get together and like, let's go, let's go for a swim in the ocean one of these days. Let's do let's it. Let's let's get get out there. Yeah. All right. Yep. Well, it's been an hour. I think wow. that's good for, for now. They flew by. <laughs> it sure did. Joe, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure and honor to be here with you. Um, Likewise. I wish all the best of luck to you and your podcast. This is really great. It's really great. Thank you. It's great to see you. And you're right, I'll see you again well. soon. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. James.